Alien Nation and Planet of the Apes. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Derek William Crabb. Taking you through a classic sci-fi team up, Planet of the Apes and Alien Nation from 1991's Ape Nation miniseries uh, from Adventure Comics. And and Derek, <laughs> this is a weird one because it teams up to franchises rather than characters. Yeah, I'm I'm a sucker for like that's that's why I enjoy listening to this show. I, I think I'm a sucker for team ups of any kind and sort. And I, I remember when I first encountered this, I was like, How cool. Like I thought it was really neat. So and when you, you asked me about something to suggest, I, I think just to go off the beaten path a little bit, you know, maybe get away from the you know, the superheroes and, and things like that, I, this was the first thing that I thought of that was still sort of comic related that I had some some fond memories of. I appreciate it because I like the weirdest team ups, but you know, sometimes guests want to do like their favorite characters. And, and so it often happens that it will be from, you know, all those bronze age. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The golden age of team ups. I, I like the variety. So if anyone wants to do something, you know, a team up that came out in the two thousands, I'm up for it. Or in this case, something completely off the beaten path. So uh, Ape Nation. Uh, in each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist picks one character, or this time franchise, to defend. So in this case, Derek, which is yours? Apes! Yeah, I'm, I'm taking Planet of the Apes here. All right, I'll take Alien Nation, which I think I know better. That's probably good. I mean, I, I feel like I have some familiarity with Alien Nation. Like, I feel strong on the film and strong on the TV series. But I think as far as ancillary media, I don't... I don't think I read any of the novels or anything like that. I just feel weak on apes because, for me, it's like the first film, the original film. I saw Beneath. If I've ever seen the other ones where they come to Earth or the TV series or anything like that, it's been wiped from my mind. Then it picks up again with really the, the latest trilogy, which mm. I thought was great. Yeah, so yeah. I've got I've got a, a big blank space in there that I hope you'll be able to fill. I hope so too. What it's customary here is that we preface with a reason or reasons why we like the franchise we've chosen. So Derek, what's so great about the Planet of the Apes? As if I don't know. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Apes! No, no, I um, I think that was going to be my initial answer, just to, to scream apes, but I wanted to give this question the, the due merit and attention it deserves. And I, I mean, I think one of the great things about Planet of the Apes is this is big budget Twilight Zone. This is like a, a topsy-turvy world, and it's got adventure and excitement, but it also provides its audience a lot of thought-provoking concepts and allegory at the same time. And it offers... Like an opportunity to view the world that, that we know from like a vastly different vantage point and hopefully gain some insight from a somewhat cautionary tale. But you're also thoroughly engaged and entertained throughout the entire franchise. Really? Are we the apes? Well, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, that's that. I mean, that's that's kind of I mean, it's 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 that kind of mirror through, you know, how you're you're looking at humanity, but through, you know, some kind of parable, you know, and, and I, I don't know, I think it's a lot more subtle and easier, like, you know, in any science fiction, when there's allegory, it's a lot easier to remove yourself from the equation when it doesn't have to deal with your personal values and judgments and everything like that. You, you can view it as an outside observer, and therefore you become a lot more impartial, and, and you can just see that world as it is. Everybody's partial, you know? So it's like that's an eventuality of just being a human being, but I think this is a franchise where I, I don't think it's too over-the-top in its commentary, and I also, you know, appreciate the franchise as it is. Like, I think that was the thing that struck a chord with the generations that watched it, because an adult can watch it and appreciate kind of the Rod Serling twist to the whole franchise and, and appreciate the acting and, and the nuances and, and the allegory and things like that. But then, you know, just on a purely childlike level, you know, the kids can get into the Mego dolls and the action of it and the, the, the battles and the kind of outlandish flimflamery that goes on in, in that world. So I, I think it works on, you know, multiple levels throughout generations. Apes on horseback. Yeah, for kids. Alien Nation is much the same. You know, it also has a strong central metaphor. It's about 
immigrations, it's about refugees, it's about assimilation and integration and race relations, not unlike Planet yeah. of the Apes. There is a, a strong similarity, which makes this sort of uh, amalgam kind of series uh, that we're going to cover today feel very natural. And I think the metaphor for alienation feels even more relevant today than it, than it was back then, or at least it feels like it. I watched the whole series again a couple years back, and it felt very, very current, even though we were looking at, you know, 90s cops yeah, yeah. Uh, with blazers and, and giant it's, cell phones. It's been a long time since I did a watch on it. I think w when I did, it was when I think they came out with that box set of all the TV movies, because I had never seen, you know, you know how the series basically kind of got abruptly canceled. And then after that, then it came back yeah. with like these revival TV movies, which I think is what Kenneth Johnson had always wanted to do with V, just do a series of like... TV movie follow-ups that never happened, but he it seemed like he was able to pull that off with Alien Nation. So I remember I sat down and rewatched like the 22 episodes and then watched like I think what is it like four movies in that that set that had like follow-ups and everything. And Kenneth Johnson, I mean, you know, I always think of him as like an actor's director and to speak to what you said about what's great about Alien Nation is he never treats properties at their face value. Like to him Hulk wasn't a quote-unquote dumb comic book like he wanted to find you know the pathos in david banner and the hulk and, and all that kind of good stuff and he focused on the drama of it and i think with alien nation i mean he mm. commonly makes the comparison he's like this is not space battles or or zap zap to him it was in the heat of the night that's what it was it was a, it was a cop yeah. drama that dealt with with race or relations so like to him that's exactly how he treated it. And because he gave it such weight and gravitas, like that's, I think that's why you feel like it's relevant today and why it's, it's a, a great metaphor for all the different aspects of everything that you described. And you cannot forget the intoxicating sour milk, which is a wonderful allegory. Which comes up in the comic, in fact, as we'll see. Yeah, it's in the heat of the night for sure. It's the buddy cop, but the, uh, the racial division and the mistrust between well, at least the human cop and the alien cop. And it's also, I mean, with the TV series, they really expanded mm. on the world by, you know, uh, Kenneth Johnson was actually on record saying, what's interesting about how do we take the movie and make a TV show out of it? Oh, the, the newcomer cop, Francisco, has a family. Oh, that's going to be a big, big part of the series. That's what's interesting. The focus kind of changes. It's not just cops and robbers. There, there's this whole the family dynamic and how the two cops share basically their lives, uh, and and those lives intermingle because obviously, you yeah, know, you're you're in the same world. To me, the series was better than the film because it had that much more depth. The film took it on like a surface value. It was the the McDonald's Express, you know, it kind of skidded the surface of those points. But in a, in a long form narrative, you get to delve into a lot of different things and find out a lot of stuff. And I, I think also the, the nature of the TV series, like the film, you can't really drag out a mystery within two hours. The mystery is the cop mystery and who killed who and that kind of thing. But like with the long form narrative of the TV series, like I remember always being engaged and engrossed by like well wait who who are the you know the tanktonese slave masters like what ship's gonna come like what's gonna happen like all that kind of stuff and i think you know i, I think that's why i was excited to watch some of those tv movies because i think they they sort of purported to to answer some of those questions and i think th those were burning questions for me mm -hmm. on that sort of maybe uh you know apes on horseback you know childlike enthusiasm with the sci-fi aspect of that series, you know, kind of wondering like what, what was going on in space and how did that all go down and who's really pulling the strings and, and, you know, that, that kind of aspect of the series as well. Well, let's talk about the publication and broadcast and uh, release history of both of these things. Uh, first, Planet of the Apes. What is its media history, if if you will do the honors? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I was trying to make this concise and short, and hopefully I can pull it off, but Pierre Boll had a 1963 novel that featured a world where apes were the dominant life form and human beings are wild, savage creatures. And this novel was adapted into a very successful feature film in the year 1968 that starred Charlton Heston as the astronaut Taylor and Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter as the chimpanzee scientists Cornelius and Zira. The film spawned 
four direct sequels, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, I Reveal My Innermost Face Unto My God, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, really sad, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which is my absolute favorite. I go to Studio City all the time, at least I did when I was in L.A., and I was like, oh, where the Conquest of the Planet of the Apes took place, woo! And Battle of the Planet of the Apes, which all uh, ran, I guess, or, or were released uh, from 1970 to 1973, There was a live-action TV series that followed in 1974, as well as an animated series that sort of harkened back to the original novel a little bit, because in that they had, like, jeeps and tanks, and, you know, they had some form of uh, industrialization as opposed to, you know, in the film they just kind of had horseback and carriages and things like that, and that animated series was airing in 1975. This is personal commentary, editorial, so so don't take it personally, but there was a extremely disappointing remake from Tim Burton in 2001. Uh, my favorite part was... Agreed. The char- <laughs> I said my favorite part was the, the Charlton Heston cameo, and that was about it. This was followed by an excellent, excellent reboot trilogy that began with Rise of the Planet of the Apes in 2011. It continued with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes in 2014, and concludes with War for the Planet of the Apes in 2017. And in addition to the films, TV series and cartoons there were novelizations toys video games and of course what we're here to talk about today comic books i'm pretty sure the oldest apes comic is the gold key adaptation of the first sequel film beneath the planet of the apes and that comic adaptation was released in 1970 marvel comics then followed with their own books there was a curtis magazine planet of the apes in 1974 and then there was the adventure on the planet of the apes which i think is just a regular comic size in 1975 And then Dark Horse and Boom Studios had their shots at Planet of the Apes comics in the 21st century. Uh, Never mind the excellent, excellent revolution on the Planet of the Apes miniseries by Mr. Comics. Back in 1990, Malibu Comics' Adventure Comics imprint published an ongoing Planet of the Apes series and a bunch of different miniseries, including the miniseries, which is our topic of discussion for today. And... That, in a nutshell, is the media history of Planet of the Apes. Apes! I don't feel like it's an editorial that the Tim Burton one sucked. I, I think that's generally accepted. I, I, I feel so bad because I, I remember there was this girl I really liked at the time, and, and we were going out to a couple different things, and I, the whole time I was like, this movie's going to be awesome, this movie's going to be awesome. And then when I finally saw it, I was like, oh man, this movie wasn't awesome. I was really, I was heartbroken. So, yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, the last trilogy is, is great. Uh, I, you know, that's, it's rare for a remake to be this good. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a trilogy prequel to the original film. And I think the original film still fits in there. Uh, so it's really the Tim Burton one that doesn't fit anywhere. Let's say that. As for Alien Nation, uh, well, it starts out as a movie, as we said, with a sci-fi twist on the old buddy cop formula, with James Caan as a somewhat prejudiced human cop assigned the first alien policeman, played by Mandy Patinkin, as a partner. Uh, three years after these odd newcomers, former slaves to a race of overlords, or unknown overlords, have crashed on Earth and sought refuge in Los Angeles. So the 1988 movie wouldn't do particularly well, either financially or critically, but Fox evidently thought the premise had a lot of potential and decided to adapt it for its nascent television network. Uh, Alienation, the TV series, debuted in 1989 and ran for 22 episodes before being cancelled after its initial season. It's, well, it's a sci-fi series on Fox, so of course, you know, it ended up on everyone's list of series canceled too soon. Uh, Nevertheless, it had a cult following, and so as of 1994, Fox continued the story through a series of annual TV movies, Dark Horizon, Body and Soul, Millennium, The Enemy Within, and The Udara Legacy, uh, which filled out our understanding of the newcomer's world and, you know, tied up a lot of those loose ends uh, you were talking about earlier left by the series. And after the series was considered dead in 1990, before those TV movies, there was still an effort to continue the story through um, a series of novels from Pocket Books, best known for Star Trek novels. And indeed, they used the same a uh, stable of writers, people like Garth and Judith Reeve Stevens and Peter David wrote for some of those books. There were eight published in all between 93 and 95. And on the comics front, uh, though DC Comics published a film adaptation, the license was then held by Malibu Comics, who through their Adventure Comics imprint published several miniseries in the Alien Nation universe between 1990 and 1992, including, of course, the project we're going to cover today. 
In 2015, Fox announced it was putting an Alien Nation remake into development. And the next year, uh, they announced Jeff Nichols would write and direct. He's the director, writer behind Mud, Take Shelter, Loving. You know, he's got a good rep as far as indie directing goes. In 2018, uh, Nichols said his script was almost done. So it looks like it's still on. We might have an Alien Nation remake on screens, you know, sometime in the nearish future. Who knows? Anyway, the project's not dead is the point. You know, I, I was going to run this past you, but are, are you aware that we, we sort of got an Alien Nation remake? I, I'm talking about Defiance. My understanding is Defiance was a video game and then it was a series on sci-fi. And I got into it for a little while, but sort of lost track of it. I believe there's three seasons of it. I think I've seen like the first two. Uh, it's kind of a post-apocalyptic world, but they're kind of living in this town Defiance and it's like there's there's humans there's and there's other sort of aliens and affected characters from that apocalypse that are all sort of living together in this kind of mosaic of a city and a lot of it if i understand correctly i, I want to say like dan s o'bannon originally got pitched or asked to make some kind of alien nation remake and i i think the end result of that ended up being a lot of things that became that series defiance like i mean i may be a little off on it but that okay. that was my understanding so i went when i heard that like it all sort of clicked and went oh yeah because the way that there were all the different cultures and how they had to interrelate and you know obviously like a human girl was hung up on one of these um they, they kind of have like white skin and long white hair or whatever i forget what the race is but it's, it's kind of like the Tankanese, and because of that there's like this weird you know romeo and juliet kind of aspect to their their relationship and everything and, and his father's a crime boss and, and I think the daughter is like the daughter of a cop or something like that the sheriff you know so it's like there, there's all these tensions because it's like the law and then it's like sort of crime element but yet there's also that clash between you know the different species and all that kind of stuff so it kind of clicked when I heard that but I just thought that might be kind of worth mentioning. All right, let's get into the comics. Uh, we've got it's a four issue miniseries, so uh, we've got a lot to get through. But I think we'll do our synopsis, and I think it's it's pretty lean. So here we go. Ape Nation by writer Charles Marshall and artists M. C. Wyman and Terry Pallet. Issue one: Plans. We open with a letter written on the sacred scrolls by our eight protagonists. Heston, who longs to leave behind Ape City and tell us of his story. Heston tells his fellow council members about the alien beings who arrived in a blinding white light out past the Forbidden Zone. The council agrees to send Heston and his allies, Packer and Winnipeg, to investigate. Though he fears it will bring nothing but pain and death, Winnipeg agrees to track these newcomers. Heston gets his old gorilla pal, Roto, out of confinement to join his ape fellowship. Finally, a young orangutan named Bart completes the group. Meanwhile, General Olo, the gorilla, and the speaking human, Simon, the ape slayer, have formed a tenuous alliance and await a mysterious third party's arrival. Enter three aliens with large spotted heads, dressed all in pink. General Olo recognizes him as Danada a new ally who recently came to Earth with his people, the Tanktanese, genetically engineered slaves of a race of overlords. Shipped off-world, their ship was caught in the gravity of a black hole, and its captain, Khan, managed to navigate through it to the future. They landed on Earth, started a small settlement, and that's when Danada decided to take over and turn his people into conquerors, deposing Khan first, then planning to bring the entire planet to its knees with the help of Olo and Simon, a troika representing the best of all three species. Heston's fellowship hasn't seen anything odd to date on their six-week journey. When Bart grumbles about lunch, Roto threatens to slap him silly. Before things can escalate, Winnipeg senses a herd of oncoming death hogs. While Winnipeg fires off his bow and arrow and Heston fires his rifle to stop the herd, Roto beats one of the death hogs to death and begins to rip off its flesh. Before the Fellowship can catch their breath, Bart is off running in the opposite direction, screaming his head off. An army of savage humans, gorilla soldiers, Tanktonese warriors, attacks our band of merry travelers. Overwhelmed by sheer numbers, Heston blacks out and when he next wakes finds himself in chains on the Tanktonese ship. Issue 2. Pasts. 
In an ape village, an ape farmer mistakes the attacking Troika army for locusts. The army ravages the local village, and Ape City is next on their list. Donata thinks victory is going to be pathetically easy. Ape City shall fall as easily as these few villages did. Shackled next to a fellow newcomer prisoner, he's given the nickname Taterhead, Heston learns he was the former captain of the newcomer vessel named Khan. Khan tells his side of the story. How he flew the ship through the black hole, how after breaking the laws of time and space, some newcomers felt more capable of breaking other laws. Laws against violence, against usurping power, against who they are. Donada and his revolutionaries took Khan and his sisters captive and proclaimed himself leader. Donada, his own brother. Just then... Khan's sister Eliza arrives with stolen keys and releases her brother, who in turn releases Heston. But before they can make their escape, Simon stabs Eliza in the back and kills her. Sharing a sense of rage and the common desire to overthrow their oppressors, Heston and Khan tag-team up against Simon, the Ape Slayer. But before he can leave, Khan must avenge his sister. He turns on Simon, but there are too many guards coming and the two new friends run out of the ship. Heston jumps on a horse and grabs Khan out of the fray. Olo makes a futile attempt to stop the infighting among his army. Eventually giving up, he goes in to see Donata in his chambers. Olo makes short work of a guard that attempts to deter his entry. While Donata is getting his royal, quote-unquote, coming-to-America treatment with three sexy newcomer ladies, Olo storms in and announces that there has been another escape, and furthermore, it was his brother. Khan. When Donata hears of this, he strikes Olo across the face. It takes everything for the ape not to kill him then and there. Guards are ordered to track them, but Simon says he's the only one who can find them and strikes out, accompanied only by his pet dingo. Olo and Donata plot to have him killed when he returns. Coming out of the forest, Khan and Heston find a deserted farmhouse where Khan and gets drunk on sour milk and stumbles into the river high as a kite. While giggling from intoxication, Khan is found by the gorilla, Roto, who is looking for some payback from the quote-unquote bubbleheads. Even when Khan goes for the gorilla's throat, he is no match for Roto's brute strength and gets slapped away. Roto then headbutts Khan into the air. Next, Roto holds Khan aloft in the air when Simon, the ape slayer, comes upon them both and threatens to stab Khan to death like he did his sister. Issue 3. Pawns. Heston searches for his comrade Khan on horseback, while another ape village is slaughtered by the Troika army. Elsewhere, Roto tosses Khan into Simon, the ape slayer. Dingo the wolf lunges at Roto, but is swatted away like a gnat. Simon and Khan non-verbally quickly call a temporary truce and tackle Roto. The fight is interrupted by a Tanktonese patrol sent to bring everyone back to the ship. They almost kill Khan, but Simon deduces he's also being taken prisoner and turns on his former allies. He, Roto, and Khan trounce the patrolman. Simon even apologizes for Khan's sister's death. Together, they ride off in search of Heston. Bart, the orangutan, is still alive and gets the bright idea to grab some baby death hogs. When the mother comes looking, he climbs a tree and attempts to drop a beehive on the mother death hog. This backfires when the bees attack him, causing him to fall from the tree onto the death hog. Tired and exhausted, all Bart wants to do is go home. And, as if by divine providence, it appears he's accidentally stumbled home to Ape City. Olo interrupts another of Donata's orgies to blame him for all the escapees. And that tells Donata that Olo has outlived his usefulness. Heston returns to the Tanktonese ship to find Khan, but instead finds his sister, Eliza, is still alive as Simon's knife only punctured one of her hearts. Armed with a knife and rifle, the two head out to kill Donata. The sun rises on Roto, Simon, and Khan. Roto chases the horses away in case someone wanted to bolt. They have about an hour before the murderous horde reaches their position. Issue 4. Pains. Everything is burning. General Olo has been hung and Donata walks through the destruction smiling. Only a dream that Donata is awakened from, but one that's too close to becoming reality. Eliza and Heston wake Donata, holding him at gunpoint. Heston demands to know how to call off Donata's army, but he tells them they're too late to stop them now. On the front, Simon, Khan, and Roto engage the three-species horde. 
Impossible odds, but they hold their ground. An army of three. Back in the ship, Donata pleads for his life and says it was all Olo's idea that he's being coerced. And then a bullet hits him square between the eyes. Olo is the shooter and finishes the job, unloading into the slump in Donata while Eliza and Heston flee. Taking a page from Princess Leia, Eliza leads Heston and herself down the trash chute. Once outside the ship, Heston convinces the guerrilla army that the newcomers have slain General Olo, while Eliza tells her own people the truth that Olo killed Donata. On the front, Simon can't explain why they're still alive. Khan suspects the Horde is not only tired and confused, but may have been drugged. Still, there are so many... And then the cavalry arrives. Bart has returned with reinforcements, shooting down one of the newcomers about to sink an axe into Roto. Ten Lightfoot apes are also at his side to join the battle. While the battle continues, Olo is satisfied that Ape City will soon be nothing more than smoking ruins. Heston and Eliza's plan was successful, as the gorillas and newcomers have slain one another. They celebrate by exchanging sour milk and spoiled fruit juice. When the heroes of the battle return to the ship a day later, they find Donata and Olo's men dead. Eliza and Heston walk out of the forest and tell them Donata is dead as well. Olo is fled. Brother and sister embrace. All the Tanktonese prisoners inside are released, and Khan takes his place as leader once again. Simon slips away. While Winnipeg is passed on, Packer is still alive and reveals Winnipeg's spirit has meshed with his own during their capture. Packer goes off to live with the Lightfoot apes, while Heston is about to head back to Ape City with Roto and Bart. Eliza brings Heston some wine as a going-away present. And Khan has a gift for Heston as well, a necklace with the symbol for infinity so they can remember each other forever. The newcomers enter the ship and leave to find a new home. Now with his wanderlust satiated, Heston is ready to return home to Ape City. When he does, he lifts a glass of wine to toast to his newcomer friends, wishing them luck finding their new home. And that's Ape Nation. So, Derek, initial thoughts? I, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm a total sucker for team ups. I like team ups on TV franchises. I like team ups in comics. I think it all stems from being sort of raised on comics, you know, like being raised in these properties that have universes that cross pollute and kind of have characters that meet one another and just, just getting a thrill out of seeing different character types interact with one another. Like you said, these properties, like, mesh fairly well. I mean, their their themes and, and impact, and, and they deal with science fiction, so it doesn't seem that outlandish that, that something like this could happen. And, uh, you know, as far as, like, the, the actual issues themselves, I do want to say that while I kind of, I think this was this was definitely pre-Wizard, but I feel like the previews hype, or maybe it wasn't pre-Wizard, I don't know, but I, I feel like I was I was definitely lured into reading the ongoing Planet of the Apes series by the hype. And this was like, I want to say this was like one of the second comics to have the dreaded like multiple cover nonsense, where I, I want to say, because it was like Legends of the Dark Knight did it, where it was like the pink and the light green and the yellow covers and all this stuff. And I remember Planet of the Apes was the same thing. I mean, it was the regular color, but they had this little overflap on the left-hand side. And it's like, depending on, you know, what version you got, you might have like a pink flap or a green flap or a blue flap or whatever it was. And I, I remember being very much influenced by the promotional aspect of this first issue launch. But I think, and this is probably well-documented on my podcast, I'm not a fan of essentials. I'm not a fan of showcases. I don't like coloring books. Like, I like my things in color. You know, that that's one of those things where I, if I find a manga that's colorized, I'm like, you know, a pig in the swamp. You know, like, I, I think it's the greatest thing ever because it's so rare. And I think because the initial Planet of the Apes comic wasn't in color, I was a little disappointed. But this... You know, to me, I'm like, that's why I'm like, you know, it, it's proudly proclaimed on the cover. You know, I'm like, I'm like just making light of it. But it's like, you know, in amazing Technicolor, you know, Ape Nation, you know, and it's like, that's one of those things where I think that's beautiful. Like, I like seeing the combination of things. I, I am just of the opinion that that kind of stuff really brings a, a story to life. And I did enjoy the art and the coloring in this four issue miniseries. You know, this deals with a lot of characters 
that are in the ongoing Planet of the Apes title. You know, Simon, Olo, Roto, Heston, like they all have very important roles to play in the ongoing Planet of the Apes. And one of the things that's nice is they don't treat this as a... Elseworlds or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you don't, you, you don't have to read this to, to be in the know, and you don't even have to read the ongoing Planet of the Apes miniseries to appreciate this miniseries, but if you read both of them, you're rewarded. You know, like, they treat it as if these things did occur to these characters, and, and they have growth and change that impacts them, you know, in the series mutually. So I that was something about this that I did appreciate. I never read the Planet of the Apes series, the black and white series. And, uh, you know, Adventure Comics were mostly... Uh, this is actually the first full-color series from Adventure Comics. So while Malibu Comics had did color, their adventure imprint... And I read a lot of this stuff, mostly like uh, Retief of the CDT and that kind of stuff, franchises that interested me. They're all black and white. Which isn't a problem for me, but but it wasn't exactly you know like Frank Miller made for black and white stuff. It was line art usually that could have been colored. They just you know didn't have the uh, the money for it probably. So Ape Nation is is cool for that, and and it's actually a coloring that is like watercolors kind of look. It's not like flat coloring, uh, four color coloring. Yeah. It's it's painterly. So they actually did yeah. a great job with that. Like I said, I didn't read the Planet of the Apes series. I don't even remember it. I, I'm not mistaken in, in thinking that even if you, you hadn't read Ape Nation, later issues of Planet of the Apes did refer back to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like there's there's like an issue of the series that actually gives you extended sequence of when Heston and Eliza kind of go off and, and drink, you know, basically the wine and the sour milk together. Like they have that little celebration drink. Does something happen there? I mean, the, the, the inference is that um, they got jiggy with it. Did they? I don't, I don't, I was going to ask about that. Like I, <laughs> I viewed it as a friendship, but I was wondering if it could have become like a Sykes, Kathy, Frankel thing. Like if they had more mm-hmm. time, like if this was a 22 episode TV series and this was the pilot, like would eventually like Heston and Eliza, would their friendship blossom into something more than that? Nothing, you know, as far as I can tell, I mean, unless you you know read between the panels or something like that, you want to ship Heston and Eliza and, and, and have your own headcanon. I, I don't think anything went down per se, other than they went off and got drunk. But I think, and, and and what happens specifically in that in that issue where it's extended, he has a flashback to remembering like a moment where he discovered his now past wife was pregnant. He flashes back to that memory for some reason. I think maybe because the feelings maybe he's feeling for Eliza, right? Like that's sparking that old memory, and maybe there's a twinge of guilt or a, a twinge of remembering the last time he felt happy. You know, like before all this kind of bad stuff went down for him, and and that she actually brought him, you know, a smidgen of happiness that he hadn't felt in such a long time. But I, I don't think it... I mean, th- this is just my opinion. I mean, if your headcanon is that they went off and got jiggy with it, feel free. But I, I just thought it was, you know, friendship that, that could have gone into something more. She hadn't, like, flown off to a whole other planet. Like, I don't know how you could ship them, because she, she went off to another planet. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the end of that relationship. But they do go into the woods and, you know, spend the night and then come back out. Yes, they got drunk. Uh, but was there more than that? I I don't know. It's, it's like I think they're they're having it both ways. Yeah, if you want to yeah, think that yeah. it works, if you don't want to think that, you know, if you're not into the ape newcomer relationship, <laughs> one night stand, that's that's fine. Especially if you've been following Heston and his drama in the other series, then this is a sort of a weird interlude. Uh, maybe, you know, in, in his own story. So the other thing that I wanted to touch on is in terms of the the ongoing Planet of the Apes series, it's it's kind of jarring to see Simon, because, like, in this, it's color, and he almost... I, I feel like Simon went all 90s or something in this, because Simon, in the ongoing series, he starts out, essentially, to me, as a child. Like, imagine, you know, I don't know, Jonathan Kent from the ongoing Superman books of the day, and that he lives in Commandy's world, so he's in a loincloth and has really long, stringy hair and everything. And that's what Simon looked like, in the ongoing series. And I think eventually he almost approximates what he looks like in this series by the end, you know, when he quote unquote grows into a man, but he's always had 
dark hair. Like, I mean, and I, I don't know, I don't know how much the color design on these covers is canon because I, I feel like there are other main characters in the ongoing series where I know they're chimpanzees, but I feel like they color them like orangutans on the cover. So I, I sort of question the, the canonicity of those covers. But, I mean, there is a cover of issue number 10 of Planet of the Apes that shows Simon in a showdown with a gorilla, and it's the young version I described to you where he has black hair. And then in this, it's like he's he's an adult. He's got the ponytail. He kind of looks like... I don't know. To me, I feel like he went all 90s. Like, he looks like Frank Drake or, or Johnny Blaze from, like, the, the 90s, you know, Night Stalker Ghost Rider comics, but in, like, mm. a loincloth. Like, like I mean, I, I think they're trying to evoke, the, like, the best image of Brent Charlton Heston type character they can with Simon in this, where it, it's like he's a little 90s, but he's kind of like a, a fit, light-haired male leading man type, you know? And, and not that the other version of Simon wasn't somebody who could have grown into that. But I mean, I think he was a lot younger, you know, it was kind of like he was of a stand by me age or something. You know what I mean? Like not a, not a Charlton Heston mm. age, but you know, somewhere along the way. So he grew up faster. I, I than... feel like it. I, I feel like he had like Nightwing syndrome where he grew up like really quickly. Like, I, I don't think the timelines mm. really make sense to me. To me, it felt like he was this young kid for about, I'd say 13 issues. And then they have this arc where it doesn't have anything to do with the main characters you've been following for the last 13 issues. It's like there were these interludes with astronauts. Like there was like a one page kind of, uh, you know, countdown to like, oh, these astronauts are about crash on the planet of the apes, you know? And then they follow those characters and it's very much like a walking dead type thing where the characters have squabble and have infighting and turn on one another. And by the end of it, the only person who's left is uh, the female astronaut and she is pregnant. And then that child grows up to, uh, to what I assume is an adult or at least the age that Simon is in this miniseries. And so her and Simon are contemporaries by like Planet of the Apes issue 21. So I'm like, I, I don't know, unless there was like a gigantic time jump between those issues. And I mean, they never really specify it. I don't feel like there was because all the other characters seem to be the same age. It's just Simon's the one that's like, I'm an adult now, you know, and it's like, oh, good for you, buddy. You graduated, you know, but I, you know, I don't know like that. That was something that I just noticed in terms of continuity. I mean, I still enjoy watching the character. I mean, he has an interesting backstory just because I guess his title is Ape Slayer comes from having tried to kill the, the descendant of Caesar, who's named Alexander in the ongoing book, but he doesn't actually succeed in that. And then he goes off with, but anyway, the, the point is he didn't actually kill Alexander. And the only person I can think of that he did kill was like a really nasty gorilla that, that kind of kidnaps him. So like, even though he has the rep of Ape Slayer, he's almost like the Jamie Lannister, Charlton Heston or something. I don't know. Like, it's like there are things about him that are noble and knightly and good, even though he has some some kind of sketchy areas in his backstory. So, you know, that that was interesting to, to follow him in this as well. So he is the sort of ambivalent character. Yeah, yeah, he kind of has like the whole heel to face in, in the course of this book. And I think in the, the ongoing, it, it's almost like the reverse. It's like he's Anakin Skywalker, and then by the end of it, you know, he goes a little, you know, Kylo Ren, Darth Vader-ish or something, you know, like that that kind of aspect, the ongoing narrative. And it's like he's, by this point, he's kind of returned to the light side. So by the time he shows up again, you know, when he's a quote-unquote a grown man, like he's actually there to help most of the characters that you are attached to characters like Heston, you know, like where it's like, he's, he's there as a friend to help them fight the next oncoming menace, which I, I it's kind of hilarious. Like this is the part where the comic book kind of goes off the rails, but like basically somehow they reincarnate the spirit of governor Breck. And he's kind of like this, I don't know how to describe it. He's like this in-betweener, like cosmic deity or something. And then they call upon like the spirit of Caesar, but he's like Caesar merged with the lawgiver and they have this big cosmic showdown. It's, it's really <laughs> strange towards the end, but anyway, Simon's on the side of the angels in that battle. And, uh, and that's how that all kind of goes down. I thought maybe it might be worth going into because I didn't realize this at first, but when they released this uh, ape nation, number one, they actually released a direct market version of it. And it was actually had a larger page count. So it was the same 28 page story that we synopsized, but then there was like a prequel where essentially 
that prequel has nothing to do with the ongoing narrative, which is, you know, I just figured I'd mention it as an ancillary note or whatever. But basically what it is, is it's kind of like a, you know how Jeff Loeb writes like the Superman Batman panels and it's like Superman and Batman are not in the same central location and it's to to show the differences between the two characters like batman's a creature of the night and has one thought and says you know damn it clark what's going on and then superman's like on the next panel and he's in metropolis and it's all light and shiny and he's like come on bruce like we got to be better than that or you know whatever the dichotomy is right it was kind of like that except for it was to show the parallels between ape society and tankanese society so you you basically had a tankanese father and a and a chimpanzee father both reading their children a story. And it's a very generic story where it's like, and then they came across a great threat and combated the threat, overcame it, and blah, blah, blah. And basically it is is like the chimpanzee fights a bear in the forest or something like that. And the Tanktonese person comes across an asteroid field on a starship. And it's like they both sort of triumph. You know, they, they, they gave it one great effort, you know, because super generic or whatever. But then, you know, the, the one guy like smacks the bear and, and takes it down or whatever. And then, you know, the, the, the Tanktonese guy like fires the rockets and, you know, obliterates the asteroid field. And then it's like, and then we all slept well and the little kids went to bed and everything's awesome. And that was like the, the prequel to the main issue and then the other thing that i think is probably worth mentioning you know shameless plug but you know i think you should get rob kelly and shag matthews to uh to read these like you know like get them to read them on air or something like that but there's an actual like who's who guide to like the cast of characters in this like that's part of the extra material in this like special direct market edition and they have like character sketches from mc wyman and then there's this I don't know. I feel like I want to talk to you about it because there's this interesting cover painting by Peter Sue. I don't know if you've seen this cover or not, but it's like a painted cover, but it's just got like a girl that looks like she came out of like slave girls from beyond infinity on it. And I was just like, I don't understand because I'm like, there's nobody in the, the book like that. So I was just like, I don't I don't understand why that's on the cover. Generic sci-fi cover? Sort of. Like, I, I feel the same way about the cover to the second issue, yeah. like that they were like, conceptual covers and then they just never they never made the real ones because it's like even in that paul gullisey cover on the second issue it's like it seems like it's just a proof of concept than an actual cover because it's like it looks like on the left side it looks like he did like a a recreation from the original planet of the apes movie which probably works okay for this but then on the the right side it's almost like he was doing like his interpretation of the 20th Century Fox Alien Nation movie. And I'm like, where do these Tanktonese people get leopard prints from? Why is this girl, you know, this Tanktonese girl on the cover looking all sultry? Like, who is this supposed to be? Is that supposed to be Eliza? Like, was she in a leopard print? No. So it's like, who is this? Why are they on the cover? It's like one of those kind of, like, fake, phony, kind of the same thing with the the Peter Sue cover, where I was like, it's a nice cover. It's painted. It, it almost looks like... You know how they're named after the actors they play? Like, the, yeah. the Tanktonese is named after James Kahn, and the chimpanzee is named Heston after Charlton Heston? It almost looks like, on that cover, they tried to paint James Kahn as a newcomer and Charlton Heston as a chimpanzee ape. I don't know if that's the intent, but I, I feel like that's what it looks like. And and again, that looks kind of weird, but it, it's just kind of strange to me. But what, what do you think about the covers? Even the first cover, the Dave Dorman one, which I think is really cool, but it's, uh, you know, it's basically what we know of those two franchises, not really what's happening in the story itself. You know, they've got guns, and trench coats and it's a guerrilla warrior with a big uh, machine gun of some sort and there's like city stuff in the background like a coca-cola machine and, and none of this none of this has anything to do with the the content of the series so they really are sort of okay artist you know ape nation it's alien nation planet of the apes do me a cover and then they just went from their own imagination. Yeah. So it doesn't yeah. really have anything to do with the, the story inside. I mean, that's false advertising in a way, but they're cool art pieces. And also a kind of what might have been. So uh, if somebody else had done the series, because, I mean, this is a an interesting take, especially if you're not reading the Planet of the Apes series, uh, where all these characters seem like seem new. So to me, Heston and Winnipeg and all of this group were all characters created for the series, more or less. Or so it seemed, you know? So you're saying, 
we're doing Planet of the Apes, but we're not using the characters from the movie. We're doing Alien Nation, but we're not using the characters from the, the movie or TV series. We're just using the cultures. Yeah. The other idea, I guess, is having apes show up in L.A. in the 90s. Mm. And, and you actually do have Francisco and... Uh, and Sykes, you know, that would have been another way to go. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like this version works a little better. I mean, I, I think it's more believable that the Tanktonese technology could have reached the planet of the apes, whether it's a jump to the future or not, you know, like that. That seems to me fairly plausible. I mean, even the even the covers for three and four by Stephen Butler, like those seem to reflect the content of the story. Like you see Olo and and Donata on the cover mm-hmm. of four, and that's a pretty cool cover. And you see like Simon and Roto and folks on the cover of number three. But I see what you're saying though, because it's like there's that proof of concept, and you know what direction would you plan to go with it? Like if they were like plain clothes cops, then w- would that be like they're they're on the hunt for the the talking chimpanzee, like that kind of thing? Like, you wonder yeah. how that might go down. I think that's you know? a bit world-breaking. If you tell me, oh, they're all part of the same universe, and this happened, and it's part of the continuity, and it, it stays in continuity, you can believe it. If you're doing apes showing up in 1990s LA with newcomers and apes, and that breaks the alienation world uh, in a way. I, I don't think that fits. It feels like an else world. It feels like something that, oh, that's a fantasy that never actually happened in alienation continuity. But the other way around like this, it feels very natural. I was actually, I quite liked the writing in this. I liked the story. I liked, I caught up with all those characters pretty easily. Some are new, some are, you know, some were from the Planet of the Apes series. And I just caught up to everything pretty easily. You know, slightly bonkers, not too bonkers. Really enjoyed it. You know, you you get to care for the characters. It's kind of a rare thing, really, especially when you're dealing with, you know, it's, you just got the four issues and so many characters, villains and heroes alike. I, I kind of think like the more bonkers a team up gets, like sometimes the more excited I get, you know, like that's that's an aspect of my personal enjoyment to the how do you mesh the worlds together and can you pull it off? And and I think another thing that I, I frequently mention and I, I think it's easy to overlook it is do the characters kind of get representation from the franchises or is there some favoritism of one franchise over the other? And I, I, I don't think the writing in this falls into that trap. Like I think both franchises are fairly equally represented here. I mean, I like, I, I guess just to go into like maybe some of my standout moments, I think, or at least, you know, point out some things like I love the moment where Khan and Simon have that nonverbal look where it's like they don't have to say anything to each other, but they're just like, all right, now we got to team up against this gorilla because then we're both going to get slaughtered, you know, like, and I, I think my buddy Mike likes to call that a rival fusion. You know, it's like they, they would be rivals, but they have to work to get, you know, it's like, it's like the whole thing, like Optimus Prime has to work with Megatron, you know, like Luthor has to work with Superman, you know, and, and this is another one of those instances where you've got, you know, people that should be at odds. It's like, you killed my sister, prepare to die, but no, we have to team up against Roto because he's this gigantic gorilla and he's going to snap both our necks if we don't do something about it. And then we can worry about our personal feud later, you know? And so I, I do enjoy that moment where they don't, they don't even have to say a word and they're on the same page. And I, I think my other favorite thing is, I think putting apes in comic form, it's funny because I feel like it's that snake eating its own head because, you know, it's frequently, I don't know, I've frequently heard it said, even though, you know, Kirby probably says he didn't have too much influence uh, or Planet of the Apes didn't have a bunch of influence on some of his work. You know, usually Commandy is something that's pointed out. You read Commandy and you can't help but think of Planet of the Apes when you're reading that book. And I, I, I feel like there's that big giant fight. There's the double page spread in issue four where they're in the middle of that big, huge battle. And it's just this very Jack Kirby in your face. You know, you've got one of these, these, perspectives of the foregrounds with people like you know screaming into camera and it's it just feels like a very awesome epic kind of shot of the carnage and destruction that's going on and i i feel like if they were going for a kirby-esque 
moment or moments in this. I, I think they pulled that off and not in a sense like they were trying to ape his style per se, but I mean, just like the format of the page and the execution of it, like felt like they were trying to channel some Jack Kirby stuff. I did enjoy that a great deal. Yeah. The art takes some chances at times, I think. And that's to me, that's Kirbyer than, than just uh, doing like a, a Jack Kirby two page spread kind of thing. Or to me, Jack Kirby, the message of his art uh, and life is mm. that you should be your own artist and you should take chances. You know, you should expand what, what's possible to do on the page. Like the first issue has a page. I, I'm not saying all these experiments work, but uh, the first issue has a page where it's uh, like four little panels, uh, just reaction shots from apes uh, in the middle of the page. And the rest of the page is red. Uh, instead of ha you know, instead of having the art laid out normally, uh, another page has the character blacking out, and there are the there's like this ink, yeah, uh, yeah, black ink sort of dripping down the panels as we look at a battle. So the artist takes some chances there uh, that I feel are Kirby esque in approach. A bit like when uh, suddenly Jack Kirby does photocopies. You know, there are some issues of Fantastic Four that do that. Yeah, right, right. It has. Yeah, he's got like the spaceways in the background or the, the planetarium type stuff that is used as the backdrop for some epic cosmic thing or whatever. Yeah, definitely. So I did enjoy the series on both art and writing levels. And yeah, I, I guess what I really enjoyed is that why this worked is that they really did find the common ground, the commonalities between those two worlds, both the apes and, you know, if, if you look back at at Caesar and the original ape movement, and you look at what alienation does, you know, both peoples were slaves, both rebelled, both, you know, so there, there are some things that are alike, and that makes the characters that become friends can relate to each other. And, uh, and I do like each of those little interactions where, you know, Eliza has a surprisingly big role in this. Yeah. You, you think you're going to follow Khan quite a lot, but Khan, he doesn't have the same stature as Heston. Heston, tells us the story. So Heston is, you know, our POV character. But Eliza is, we meet her, she gets stabbed, you know, immediately we think, oh, she's been fridged, basically. She's going to give Khan a reason to get revenge, and she's been fridged. But no, she survives that, and then she becomes an action hero in her own right. A pretty important character with a nice relationship with Heston, whether it's romantic or not. I think it's even better if it's not romantic. I think I like yeah, the, yeah. I like your take on it, where these two characters sort of clicked and uh, triumphed and then partied. <laughs> There's a lot of newcomers party a lot in this. Who fared better? Our small debate on a number of topics, how this was balanced, actually. So how well does this fit each of the stories or atmospheres that the franchises are telling. Is this more of a Planet of the Apes story or more of an Alien Nation story? What do you think? I think maybe I gave it away, but I, I think they were equally represented in this. I, I think what you were talking about before, about Khan and Heston, like the fact that they're both captured on the Tankdeni ship, I, I think nothing in this series better epitomizes the notion of removing the yoke of oppression than that splash page of like, Heston and Khan both like charging and screaming like as they get released. So I, to me, I think that's like, if you look in the, the Webster's dictionary of equal representation between film TV franchises or comic franchises, you're going to see that splash page where they're both equally represented on the page and they're both removing the yoke of oppression and, and attacking their oppressors. Like, I think that's a pretty cool splash page uh, yeah, i i mean i don't know if that's a tame answer to this but i i think they are equally represented well i'll disagree in the sense that i i agree that there's fair representation for each both on the villain and the hero side but i know i'm supposed to defend alien nation here but really i think it's more of a planet of the apes story in the sense that it takes place on the planet of the apes that's a world that as part of a series that is the planet of the apes series where these alienation characters are crashing the party sort of thing. So we're in a Planet of the Apes environment with Planet of the Apes established characters. Heston is telling us the story. You know, they're the visitors. Uh, well, quite literally, <laughs> I guess. I was just going to say, it's kind of like, though, the apes have a handicap because, like, their world 
it fits better for the concept. And technically, the Tanktonese, like, we don't really ever see their home world. I mean, you, you can't say, like, L.A. is their home base, right? Like, I mean, they're just as out of place technically in Los Angeles as they, as they would be in Ape City, right? So, like, their strength as a concept is to place them you know, in the whole fish out of water concept. I don't think the tank denies work if they're in a area where they're they're happy to be there. You know what I mean? Like the the whole point of them is is that they they land and arrive in an area where they're unwelcome and and technically not wanted. And it's like how do they incorporate into that society and continue to lead like happy, meaningful and fulfilled lives even though they're a, a gazillion miles away from home. The whole deal of the newcomers is that they'll always be visiting. They, they could, you could actually do a lot of hmm. nation hmm. Uh, series where they're, they're just visiting other franchises. Yeah. That, that concept works. Cool moves. What are, uh, well, in your case, the apes' coolest moves? I think the fan aura moments for the apes are all the gorillas. Like, the gorillas have... To me, I mean, I, I feel like this series, as much as in, say, the Alien Nation TV series, they try to accentuate that, say, like, George Francisco could kick the crap out of Cisco, or Cisco, out of Sykes, <laughs> Freudian slip, out of Sykes anytime he wants to. I think in this case, pretty much a newcomer could beat up any ape class except for a gorilla, because Roto and Olo, like, they are not to be trifled with. And, and anytime somebody tries to mess with them, you know, even if it's somebody with newcomer tank the knees level strength, they can't stand up to gorilla strength. So to me, I'm like, gorillas are greater than, than tank the knees. So that, that would be, for me, the cool move would be, you know, when, when Olo, you know, wraps his hands around Donata or when Roto just manhandles Khan in the river or whatever. Like those are the, the cool moves for, for this series for me. Cool moves for newcomers. I'm going to give it to Eliza, uh, getting into battle mode after being stabbed in a heart. She's, a, she's unstoppable. And, and again, going back to like really well done splash pages for accentuation of the story, like that moment when, when she's getting armed, you know, when it's like her and Heston and she's got the gun and everything, like that's a really like badass image and everything. Like you, you, you know, like she's, she's out there ready to kick ass. So like that, that is a great moment for her. What about dumb or weird moves? There are always some when you try to jam two characters or franchises together. What's the apes? dumbest or weirdest move i feel like the orangutans got the short end of the stick in this because bart is like the wesley crusher of the the ape like fellowship or whatever like he's mm -hmm. he's green and he's a noob and he's stupid and i find that odd too because i'm like typically in the ape franchise you know the orangutans are the theologians they're the statesmen you know like typically I mean, they, they might not be strong enough to take out an ape, but they're certainly, like, crafty enough to outsmart, you know, a, a gorilla or a newcomer or something like that. And, I mean, I guess he makes good towards the end. You know, he does bring the reinforcements and kind of calls in the cavalry. But I think, you know, for the majority of it, like, he basically is kind of a, a silly goofball character, and, and I... I kind of think that is the, the dumb moment for the ape. Why is this person that should conceivably be, you know, clever and smart? It's like, it's like you're thinking of um, Dr. Zaius, you know, like, mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, th there is no cool, crafty Dr. Zaius in this, you know, per se. It's either they're chimpanzees, they're getting by the skin of their teeth, or they're really, really strong, awesome gorillas. But I think the orangutans kind of fall short in this, and I'd say they're the weak link or, or the weird dumb move in in this series for the newcomers is Khan getting drunk i mean you're you're escaping from your enemies there's a lots to do uh the an army on the and uh you, you find some sour goat's milk in the barn mm, it's like he's addicted immediately there i mean the, the newcomers in this are very hedonistic let's say i mean uh but you think it's donada donada's kind of you know, wrong in the head and in the spa with the ladies. and But no, they're all like this because even Eliza goes out to get drunk at the end of this. Well, you know, you, you, you know, I'll, 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 
I know I'm supposed to defend the apes, but I'll, I'll defend Khan a little bit because you don't know how long it's been since he's seen a can of sour goat milk. I mean, for all you know, they've been like, you know, going through the future for like, you know, hundreds of years. And, and the last time he's gotten drunk was a long time ago. So maybe it was just one of those things where you're, you're in this topsy turvy world. I mean, who's to say how you would act? I mean, if you ended up on the planet of the apes and you stumbled into, you know, I don't know, a vat of Jack Daniels or something and you're just like, ah, hell, I might be dead next week. Might as well live it up while I can, you know, type thing. Like, maybe that's the attitude. I mean, it's not my attitude personally, and I get where you're coming from. Like, I think it is a dumb move, but may- maybe that's where his head's at. Not so much that, that he, he was being inconsiderate or unconscious of what he was doing, but just that maybe he wouldn't get the chance to do what he was going to do, and he figures he's going to live his life to the fullest, whatever of it he has left. Right. You're a newcomer lover. That's what the series would say. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Taterhead. He's my favorite. What about the friendly farewell? It's a team of tradition. How does this one rate when the two uh, sides say goodbye? I mean, I mean, I guess it depends on who you're looking at. But I mean, if you look at the protagonists and the heroes, I'd say it's it's extremely the friendly farewell. You know, they they exchange drinks, they do share some smiles and some laughs, and they call each other friends, and and they they toast each other and wish each other you know, well on their journeys. Uh, but I mean, I mean, if you looked at it isolated with the whole Donata Olo farewell it's like well that goes completely awful right like he shoots him in the head so like that that's not so friendly but i mean you know i i mean i i guess leaning towards you follow the protagonist the protagonists are our heroes you know yes this is this is extremely friendly unless you count the bad guy shooting the other bad guy in the head no the heroes yeah they're toasting each other even after it's not just goodbye it's we have such fond memories that they survive beyond the story where you know heston is i mean it's much later and He's telling the story to other apes, and then he's still toasting to the sky. You know, there's like, they meant something to one another. So uh, this is probably the friendliest farewell I've ever seen on the show. Woohoo! I win! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll take a break for a couple of promos, guys, and then we'll be back with our bonus team-ups. Coming soon from Amalgam Studios, Alien Nation Planet chronicles the apes' journey into space through the black hole and into 1990s Los Angeles, where copper George Taylor is saddled with an ape partner. Can he and Officer Caesar take down the guerrilla gang before they kill one another? Taylor may just have to accept that they aren't all damned dirty apes. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanhole soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. We're back! And our final feature on every episode, the bonus team-up in which each of us proposes a perfect alienation or Planet of the Apes team-up. Well, Derek, you got Planet of the Apes, so what's the fantasy team-up here? I, I think I already did it. I took my NECA Planet of the Apes figures, and, and I have them capturing a savage, you know, loincloth wolverine, and they're saying the only good Logan is a dead Logan, and Logan saying... It's a madhouse, bub! A flaming madhouse! And then, of course, we've got the, the ape from the original Planet of the Apes saying, Shut up! Shut up, you beauty freak! So, I, I, I was gonna say, uh, Wolverine on the Planet of the Apes. I have a little image there in the, the show notes, but that was something where I, I had fun with that, cause, and that's what I immediately thought of when you said a Planet of the Apes team up. I mean, it, it might even be fun to see, in, in some sense, you know, try to merge like a, x-men days of future past with the apes timeline you know see how something like that would go down i mean i feel like i'm kind of hindered because there have already been a lot of really cool 
apes, you know, Kong on the Planet of the Apes, Tarzan on the Planet of the mm-hmm. Apes, Star Trek and Planet of right. the Apes. I mean, it's it's pretty conducive to to having a fun team up type thing. And I, I think all those ones that I mentioned are really fun, but I, I think I'm interested in seeing something like, you know, X-Men Planet of the Apes. Cause I think, like you said, with Alien Nation, I think the allegory aspect might slide in pretty easily and, and, and make for some interesting story concepts. Yeah. You could redo beneath uh, the Planet of the Apes and instead of the atom bomb, it's like the head of a sentinel. Mm, yeah. 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 And project uh, weapon X is still somewhere in there in the bowels and Wolverine survived because he's unkillable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. You could do this. So this is your own uh, little staging and picture. Yeah, that is mine. You made this. Yes, absolutely. With your permission, we'll put it in the image gallery. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the show notes available to all along with images from these comics. I had to do an alien nation team up. So uh, I'm doing Alienation and The Last Action Hero was my idea. I, I could have done like the comic and just dumped the new, you know another newcomer ship somewhere, like I said. But I really wanted to use the characters from Alienation, Sykes and Francisco. So they partner up with Super Action Hero Jack Slater at the police HQ hub, where apparently any cop buddy cop situation can be combined <laughs> and uh in the course of the story of course they slip into the re- you got to do that they slip into our world the real world through the movie screen uh, following a newcomer criminal same story so that's where things get more serious and sykes and francisco get to compare their immigration story with contemporary america's hmm. immigration story that's interesting it's probably going to get real serious <laughs> That sounds cool, because I think that's not something I would have immediately thought of. I, I don't know if it's a movie. It's probably a comic book. That's an idea. I don't know how I come up with it. Uh, you know, it, very often you're just saying, oh, geez, who do I put in there? It's harder when it's not superheroes, right? You, you know what's, what's funny for me? Like, I, I guess what I always wanted, because Kenneth Johnson worked on both, and I, I felt like the ships for the newcomers were so similar yeah. to the visitors. Like, I always, I, I always kind of wondered, like, what it would be like if the, the visitors somehow interacted with the Tanktonese or if the Tanktonese were that third unknown alien force that could have come and helped the humans, you know, like, or something, you know, from the, yeah. from the visitors or something. I don't know, but you know, like something like that might be kind of fun too. And in a different continuity, maybe the visitors are the overlords of the yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. newcomers. Yeah. yeah. That kind of thing. Or they, they, you, you just set up a story where they both come to earth at the same time, two flying saucers, humanity's kind of sort of allying with the newcomers to fight the the visitors or maybe at first they think the visitors are the goodies and anyway there's a lot of things that in common between the two uh, franchises obviously even visually so uh, there's something there probably well we're running out of time so thanks for teaming up with me derek uh, remind people where they can find you on these here internets yeah thank you for having me cisco this is awesome this is always a lot of fun and if anybody wants to check out other podcasts about pop culture, comics, that kind of stuff, uh, they can find them over on fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. And I also do a web series uh, covering the chronological history of comics on film, and that's History of Comics on Film, and you can find that over on hocof.blogspot.com. A reminder that we do enjoy reading your comments, and that the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. But you can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page, or tag us on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcasts. So see you next time for another amazing any kind of team up because after all, justice is a team effort. Did it. You maniacs! You blew it up!